Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Mdiwa Kavaza, and for today, uh, we do get into um, what I think is probably the most topical uh, discussion right now in South Africa, and uh, that is the issue around load shedding. Unfortunately, it's become, you know, as topical as it is because we found ourselves moving to stage six uh, load shedding this week, which has been, you know, quite a harrowing experience if i can't find a better word to describe the disgruntlement that a lot of people are currently facing at the moment so to discuss what all of this means firstly for i guess everyone in south africa who's affected and also the economy we're actually just going to um, get into a conversation we are joined by hilton trollip who is an independent consultant in energy research and a research fellow in the global risk governance program over at UCT. Hilton, greetings to you today. Greetings, Madiwa. No, no, thank you so much for being with us. Now, I'm just going to tell you a bit of a story and you're going to tell me how we how we fix, you know, this situation. Um, I'm currently somewhere in the north of Johannesburg and, uh, you know, I've had no power uh, where I am for the last 21 hours uh, because uh, electricity went out at 12 yesterday as per the normal load shedding uh, that was on stage four. And then it was meant to come back two hours later. And then we heard that we're switching to stage six, which extended it by another two and a half hours, which took us to four. At four, electricity didn't come back because, as you know, uh, substations are not meant to be switched on and off. Uh, so the electricity tripped. And basically, we had a fault until three this morning. Uh, City Power fixed it, but only for a few minutes. And then um, after that, uh, we continued having no power because it was the second trip in the system. And ever since then, they haven't fixed the system. So 21 hours later, I find myself without power uh, where I am. And I don't relate this story to be, you know, special in any way, because I can imagine that uh, a lot of people, you know, have probably experienced the same. But uh, what's going on? How can we actually fix this? Uh, situation because I can imagine that um, a lot of people are going through something similar. I mean, just the simple connectivity to get onto the call for this recording has been an issue because of what's going on. Yes, so Madiwe, I'm glad that you raised the issue both of substations and of uh, the, the load shedding because um, the, the, this problem is bigger than Eskom and uh, it's bigger than local government, but it involves local government too, which is the substations. The underlying problem, the primary problem that we have is that there isn't enough generation capacity connected to the national grid. And that generation capacity consists mainly of old coal-powered power stations, two new ones, and then a whole lot of renewables that were connected largely between 2011 and 2015. But quite simply, a proper analysis of the state of those power stations, their reliability, their likelihood to break down, the risk of their breaking down, is such, and Eskom have been very clear on this. Last year, the system status report said there's a shortage of between four and 6,000 megawatts of generation capacity on the national grid. Now, how does generation capacity get onto that grid? Firstly, I'm an independent uh, expert. Um, I got a degree in electrical engineering in 1980 from BITS. In the mid-80s, I was the systems architect for the system that controls electricity supply to the then-called Witwatersrand, the 
ran telecontrol system, now Gauteng. Uh, in the 90s, I got uh, deeply into economics and energy planning and uh, was central in the Energy White Paper. And in the Energy White Paper published in 1998, it was stated quite clearly that South Africa would run out of power by 2007 if we didn't build new power stations. We didn't. I'm not going to get too much into history, but what I want to say is, firstly, this is a deep problem. Secondly, that I understand it not as a lobbyist for renewable energy or coal or against or for anything except rational action and planning. So this problem, big load shedding hit in 2006 in the Cape, then nationally in 2008. And we have a piece of legislation. We are a rules-based society, which says it's called the Electricity Regulation Act of 2006 that only the energy minister may authorize new generation onto the grid. It also says that that energy minister must publish plans, long-term plans, for getting this generation power onto the grid. And the reason for that is you can't just wake up one morning and order generation power put onto the grid. It's a long-term process of the different kinds of technology that need to go onto the grid. So nobody may do it without the minister authorizing it, and the minister have, has to have a plan. And quite simply, over the past 10, 12, 14, 15 years, the energy ministry simply hasn't done its job properly. So because of that, and the initial load shedding, and there was state capture and all of that that does play a role in ESCOM performance, but no matter how well ESCOM performs, if they've got old power stations on the grid that haven't been replaced with new generation, and if the two generating powers, the new ones, Mudipi and Kasile, that are on the grid, have design faults and construction faults, which were linked to dodgy contracting um, when they were built, when they were ordered, then Eskom simply is sitting with not enough generation power on the grid, and what it has is old and unreliable. So what is the fix? Well, if the energy ministry had, six, seven years ago, published the plan it was meant to publish to update what's the previous plan that was published in 2011, and then it had put in uh, implementation plans to put the new generation onto the grid, we wouldn't have a shortage. But it didn't, and it steadily hasn't. Uh, Mudiwa, I've been number of interviews starting five years ago saying this is not a short-term problem. It doesn't have short-term solutions. So unfortunately, I've got some unwelcome news coming from the world of reality. Unless we decrease the load on the system hugely, in other words, we close down even more factories than currently switch off to decrease load, we load shed even more, we simply don't have enough generating power. So what's to be done? One thing, there has been one ray of light recently. The president last May ordered the energy minister to lift a restriction on people just building their own power station and connecting it to the grid. It was called the Amendment of Schedule 2 of the Electricity Regulation Act. And what that said was that the, the, the level used to be one megawatt and it was increased to 100 megawatts. So one of the, 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 the rays of light in this is that Eskom using this new relaxation of the need uh, for uh, uh, licensing of new generation, has made available 18 sites on which 100 megawatt uh, IPPs uh, are being built. The private sector is lining up with finance. Project developers are lining up with projects to connect to the grid. But what's stood between those financiers and those 
projects has been the energy ministry. And although they too, and by the way, when the, the president ordered the energy minister, that was after a long battle. There was a resistance from the minister and uh, his department for years to the, for that relaxation. But finally, the president stepped in uh, and the energy minister, in his own words, he said his arm was twisted. But as a result of that, firstly, there are those 18 uh, ESCOM projects. Secondly, there are as much as 4,700 megawatts of other uh, mainly PV generation that the private sector is bringing to the grid. Uh, I'm just listening to everything that you're saying because one of the things that's quite clear and evident when it comes to this issue, um, you know, of ESCOM is the fact that obviously um, these are things that have been uh, affecting us, you know, for you know a really long time. People have understood uh, the issues for decades now. You're talking about, uh, you know things that were spoken about in 1998. Uh, we're talking about predictions to 2007. We're now in 2022. Uh, you know, all of those things. And one of the things I'm quite curious, you know, to maybe know and understand, it's great that we are now going to ha be having more of the independent power producers coming onto the grid. But like you said, that's not a quick fix because they actually need to build their capacity before it can actually be, you know, uh, put onto the grid, which takes uh, a bit of time. Before that even happens, you need to finance these projects. Before that happens, you need to get approvals for these projects. You know, before that happens, you need to twist the arm of the uh, energy ministry, all of these these, you know, things happening. And what I wanted to maybe understand is, you know, with uh, the current situation right now, right, is to say, where is the disconnect, right? At least to my understanding, we use about, I think it's two thirds of the installed capacity is the demand that's actually used on the ground uh, versus what's actually there. And then you now hear that all of these megawatts aren't online anymore. So people just wonder, like, where is the actual disconnect? You've got more installed capacity than what is necessary. Demand hasn't really changed that much uh, over the last, you know, decade or so. Where does it actually, where do, where do the wheels actually fall off? Um, you know, where you end up having ESCOM saying, fine, we need to to just uh, take off uh, X amount of uh, power because we just have lost this amount of generating capacity. So, I mean, this is why a, a longer discussion of this is necessary because um, it's it's not correct, Mudiwe, that we have more capacity than demand. The, the reason we have load shedding is when demand exceeds capacity. Now, capacity is not just the number of generating stations connected to the grid. We've got a total of about 50,000 megawatts of capacity, but it's the state of that capacity. So of that 50,000, only about 43,000 is actually in a serviceable state at all, can be connected. Of that 43,000, typically, on average, there's something called the energy availability factor. Only 60% of that is typically available these days. Every year it goes down. And the reason it goes down is because, as I said at the beginning, those coal-fired power stations, that's most of the capacity, they're old. And as things get older, they break down more often and they need more maintenance until one day they break down all the time and you can't even fix them. So firstly, when you say it's not that demand exceeds supply, that's exactly what the reason for load shedding is. Eskom looks at its uh, its power stations, 
Some of them are taken off the grid for what's called uh, planned maintenance. You have to, any device, whether it's a car, you have to send it in to get serviced if you don't want to break down on the side of the road. Thing is, once your car gets a bit older, once it's done 200,000 kilometers or 300,000 kilometers, no matter what maintenance you do on it, it's going to break down on the road. So Eskim is now sitting with most of its fleet. They're old cars. They've also got hammered at various pe- points in the in the past 10 years for political reasons. They weren't serviced when they were meant to be serviced. The oil wasn't changed, metaphorically. So of those, all of those, when Eskom announces load shedding, it's not because they've got these power stations that they could easily connect. They can't. What, what happens is they've got the ones offline for planned maintenance, and then there are a whole lot that just go out for unplanned maintenance. They break down, they stop working, or if you continued operating them, it would be unsafe. And so it's not a choice of Eskom at that stage. Eskom has to shed load because they simply don't have enough generating capacity that's working. It's got to work for it to be actually available. So that's a huge misconception that Eskom can just choose to switch off. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're looking at all their power stations and the operators of those power stations are saying, guys, this one generator, it's overheating, it's got to go down. Or this um, steam cooler or this uh, turbine or this boiler is going to blow up if we don't close it down. And that is what happens. And they close it down and then it might be off for a week, a month. Sometimes these things are off for a year if there was a serious malfunction. And more and more, they're off for a long time. So right at the center of this, I realized I was getting into a very complicated uh, explanation around um, the law and who is responsible and who must do it. But at the bottom of this, understanding the physical engineering of the system, quite simply, the South African generating system is not up to meeting peak demand, simply. And another thing, Madiwa, the the demand changes a lot. So you'll know sometimes we just have load shedding from uh, 6 until 8 when it's uh, at a late uh, stage 2 or whatever. That's because everybody gets home from work, switches on the kettle, the stove, uh, the has a shower, so the geezer switches on, etc., and at peak demand, which is in the morning, about from eight till about half past nine, and in the evenings, depending on whether it's winter or summer, from six till about nine, suddenly a lot more stations are needed. And that's why the level of load shedding often changes, um, because there simply isn't enough generation on the system. And what I'm saying is getting generation onto the system isn't like buying a new car. You've got to... <laughs> Depending on the technology, it can take, you know, a nuclear power station takes more than 10 years to build. A power station, a big coal-fired power station takes six, eight years to build if it goes well. Madupi Kusile took 14, 16 years to build. Uh, but these uh, renewables, uh, photovoltaics, can be built in a year. Wind turbines as well, a year, 18 months. So, I mean, this is going right down the line. But for us to get not completely out of load shedding, but to decrease the risk of load shedding as fast as possible. What is needed is a plan on the table by the DMRE to connect as much PV and wind as can be done as fast as possible. And it can be done a lot faster than the DMRE's current plan. There's an official plan. It's actually stuck, by the way. Um, And it was late and it was too little. And so I'm going back again to how to fix this. Nobody is allowed to just come and put 
massive wind power and PV power or coal power or gas onto the grid, the DMRE has to have it in its plan, has to authorize it in one way or another, or give an exemption like they've given to these 100 megawatts, and they're not. The DMRE does not have a plan on the table that can credibly deal with load shedding, firstly. Secondly, the plan they have got on the table has still got coal-fired power stations on it, even though the DMRE knows very well they can't be financed. So even if they implement that plan, there's still going to be load shedding. And there are officials in the DMRE, there's the chief economist, wrote in the Daily Maverick, saying the engineers don't understand how power systems work. Go and have a look at the, the Daily Maverick article. I think people like him are advising the minister incorrectly. Not I think, I know, I'm an electrical engineer. Professor von Blotwitz from UCT writes to this economist and says, you're an economist, you don't understand energy systems. But people like him have got the minister's ear. And so the minister's listening to them, and he's been listening to them, the successive ministers now, for 14 years, and they do not, that is where the problem lies. And until that plan that the DMRE authorizes deals with reality, we're stuck. Eskim can do, all Eskim can do is keep this old fleet of power stations as much on the road as possible, but they're going to be off the road more and more. So if you look at the performance of that fleet of power stations, every year it's about another 3% down. That's just, that figure that's at 60% now. Five, six years ago, it was at 70%. Each year it goes down a bit more. Each year we hear Pravin Gordon and the president and the minister saying, next year it'll go up. All the engineers say it'll go down. They don't build more power stations and we carry on going. I actually want to drill down into that, uh, you know, that engineering point before we before we let you go, Hilton. Uh, it's uh, it's on two points for me, and the first one is to you know speak about that aging fleet. We recently had a discussion just the other day with one of the large technology companies, IBM. And we were talking about uh, legacy infrastructure and uh, systems in banking, right? Um, because that's that's a big that's a big issue uh, right now that is affecting us today. People get to an ATM, they can't withdraw money, they can't swipe because you have all these old systems that are struggling to talk to the new systems. That's a that's an IT issue. Right. And uh, one of the things that they say when it comes to those banking systems is, you know, the mindset was if it's not broken, why are we fixing it? And I wanted to check in, you know, on the side of, you know, the electricals. Is that the issue to say that because I can imagine that power generation is still power generation um, has is is it an issue of changing the technology that is being used? Is it upgrading and putting in new turbines like you know what we're talking about? Is it uh, switching over to new you know methods of generation? Uh, because the updates need to happen exactly like what you said. But I'm just curious to understand: is it a revamp of the whole system? Is it putting new parts in? Like, uh, what well, what does that look like? So, um. It's an it's a excellent uh, analogy. So what's happened in energy as well is we have a coal-based system, and it made sense in its day. Um, but what, what's happened in the, over the past 10 years is, firstly, um, uh, wind power became a lot cheaper, and then PV power became a lot cheaper, and now batteries are becoming a lot cheaper. And they've all 
reached a stage. Well, they reached a stage about, well, wind about five years ago, PV about three years ago. Batteries are entering that stage now. They've reached, reached a stage where it doesn't make technical or economic sense anymore to build a coal-fired power station, never mind the environmental issues, purely on cost and technical performance. The, 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 uh, a number of independent modelers, CSRR, UCT, others, have shown, uh, and these systems are complicated. You have, you know, wind is good for the whole day. PV, the sun only shines during the day. Battery backs up PV at night. We also use pumped storage. We also use gas turbines. All of these systems, including the grid being able to manage them, they operate together to form a system. At the moment, it doesn't make sense to build any more coal-fired power stations. And what happens historically, so I'm not uh, blaming the people at the DMRE for not being like most people, but when there's a big technological transition, usually there's resistance because there's a, a, a people invest a lot in expertise, in technology. Also, people own coal mines. And if we change over to uh, wind and PV, their coal starts not having any value. And they've just spent a huge amount of money. A whole lot of local coal mine owners have bought from the multinationals. They bought all the coal mines, and now they own them. And they're also politically connected. So there are a number of reasons for resistance to new technology. And that article I was speaking about with the chief economist of Daily Maverick, what he's arguing for is the need for coal and nuclear baseload stations. And quite simply, they aren't needed anymore. They're not appropriate from a purely, if you model the system and you put different elements into it, they don't fit in to be least cost or best performance. And unfortunately, the people at the DMRE disagree with that. But they won't have an open debate on it. So the minister is on record as saying that the, the uh, modelers that came up with independent modeling, showing these technologies work, he said, are they funded by foreigners? That's why they're saying this. I can tell you, I know those modelers. I've worked with them for 30 years. There's no reason that because and they're not funded by foreigners and they're not trying to undermine the department. We are, as independent experts, trying in an open debate, this is why I'm sitting with you here and putting this effort in, to try and get the DMRE to stop trying to attack the people for their funding sources when they say sensible things and to have an open, proper debate and stop resisting the change to these new technologies. Because I can tell you a lot more about, about <laughs> how the resistance, how that's been going for years and years. How the resistance is done, yes. yeah. how they slow stuff down, how it doesn't work. So what happens yeah. is they even ran a coal IPP program, okay, the DMRE. We told them, they said, you, you can't finance that in the late 2010s. It's not financeable. They put huge effort into it. They got, the, they named two uh, IPPs, they went off, and guess what? They couldn't get finance. So they didn't build two coal-fired power stations. That happened in 2015. But while they weren't, while they were chasing those coal-fired power stations, they didn't build the PV and the wind. That's why we've got load shedding. If we, from 2015, been building the PV and wind, we yeah. wouldn't have load shedding. Now they're trying to push nuclear. They're putting this massive effort and funding into <laughs> nuclear. You can't build a nuclear power station in less than 10 years, and they'll never build one anyway, in my opinion. Yeah. So 
And the, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Program, it's tiny, it's not big enough to deal with the problem, and it's stuck. And it's stuck because of their incompetence. Hilton, I just want to, you know, bring you back a little bit because I, I can clearly tell with the passion that there's, yeah. a, firstly, there's a lot going on here. Secondly, uh, I can tell that this is a complex discussion that probably needs a yeah. part two or part three or part four, even a part 10, uh, you know, just to get through everything that needs to be done. Absolutely. Thirdly, it's just so unfortunate that something that is affecting, um, you know, so many people around South Africa, there's a saying that I like, uh, which says that, um, you know, when elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers. And, you know, one gets the yep. sense that, you know, all of this politicking that uh, happens, all of the different policies, um, you know, all of this infighting, things that are unbeknownst to us as uh, the citizenry, um, you know, are affecting us. But it's just a few people at the top uh, that are squabbling amongst each other that end up affecting uh, millions on the ground. Lastly, uh, before I let you go, because of everything that's happening on the ground, people are looking for immediate fixes. Uh, the cost of PV has come down. Uh, I always relate that uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to one of the big um, electronics shops um, in Johannesburg, sort of uh, in the Mauro's area. And usually, you know, people, it's a very quiet place because it's a very specialized electronics shop, but it was full on that day. And I was like, what are people buying? There can't be that many people that want PlayStations and Mac computers and whatnot. And uh, the big thing was, no, people are here for inverters. And I was <laughs> like, wow, that is uh, that is a tough situation. And I guess your closing thoughts very briefly, because I know we need to let you go, is uh, do you foresee a situation where at the end of the day, South Africa just becomes a nation of, uh, you know, IPPs all over the place where everyone has a solar panel, everyone has a Tesla power wall, everyone has, mm -hmm. you know, small generators at their house, whether it's an office park, whether it's a complex, whether it's a neighborhood, etc. So, um, I would say that given technology costs steadily, uh, IPPs of a very, a very wide range of sizes will take over the system. So people will install systems. I've got batteries and an inverter and panels over here, and my electricity costs me less than I can buy it from the city. I really think we've got a good electricity department here in Cape Town, but we've got load shedding from Eskom. So I'll be putting in people like me, upper middle income people, will be putting in these things in the droves. But so will shopping centers, so will factories, so will big shopping malls be putting them in, so will the city. Uh, City of Cape Town and Ukirileni, they've announced they're going to be building their own systems. But also, Andre Dureta has said it doesn't make sense for Eskom to build power stations anymore. Quite simply, Eskom can't because they don't have a balance sheet that can support power stations. So steadily, between now and when, hopefully, we sort out our system in South Africa at every level. People will be putting IPPs from my little home system all the way through to these huge 100, 200 megawatt utility scale power systems. But that does not absolve or mean that we don't need to plan this thing centrally because all these things have to work together, one. And two, there are times when th that's variable, the wind and the PV, et cetera, and the batteries, where we need to draw on storage or backup systems. We use peakers at the moment, diesel peakers. They're very cheap, diesel peakers, the, the, the capital cost 
They're just very expensive to run. But if you've got lots of wind and PV and batteries and whatever, you only need to run them 5% of the time. So typically what other successful countries have done, they're installing PV and wind like it's going out of, like it's coming into fashion because they realize <laughs> that it is the fashion. And what they're also doing though is they're making sure their central authorities, which is the equivalent of a DMRE, their system operators, are making sure that there's also the necessary backup. And that becomes the, the, the public uh, 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 utility role in the system is to make sure there's backup and also to build the grid. We can't have everybody building their own grid. So it's essential that we have a, a grid that works and connects all these things together. So that works. But we need some people to get out the way because they're stopping at work. So that's been it. We were talking to Hilton, you know, just around uh, what's been going on in and around uh, the electricity situation in South Africa. Very fascinating discussion. Um, Hilton is an independent uh, consultant in energy research and a research fellow in the Global Risk uh, Governance Program over at UCT, highlighting the fact uh, that uh, we have been seeing a lot um, of issues and the fact that a lot of the stuff, um, you know, unbeknownst to the public um, has it's a lot of fights that been had uh, uh, for a long time and uh, what has been known to the public is the fact that uh, these things had been flagged uh, for a long time but you know just not understanding you know some of uh, some of the deeper issues uh, that are actually happening underneath um, we're definitely going to be having him again uh, because there's so many facets uh, that are involved in um, you know trying to understand everything that is going on so for today thank you so much to hilton this is mudiwa's take the fights or the disagreements or the invested interests or um, the egos, the pride, um, you know, all of these things, the enrichment of a small group of people uh, is affecting the whole country the way that it is. But more than anything else, one of the big things uh, that I want to maybe zoom in on is the fact that you have a lot of narratives uh, that tend to be distracting from, you know, the simple truth on the ground when you listen to guys like uh, hilton and hilton is not the only one um he's a technocrat so as far as he can see these are very simple issues that have a simple fix he's an engineer so you you understand that from his point of view these things are very simple and when you do look at it quite closely you do see uh, that these things are very simple when you look at it um in totality unfortunately the narratives that are um they driven by your entrenched interests, uh, people that have, uh, you know, maybe money um, involved in all of this, uh, people that uh, are perhaps looking to um, enrich themselves, people that are looking to uh, benefit from this broken system. It's actually quite sad, um, you know, the situation that, you know, we do find ourselves, uh, people talking about, you know, what needs to happen, what doesn't need to happen. And the reason why we talk about narratives is, um, like what Hilton was talking about, he's highlighting the fact that um, things like coal 
I think for a long time we've heard that um, you know coal is out, um, and for a long for a long time um, coal was the main thing. But there's been a lot of other uh, new innovations that have come in. Uh, we have the wind, we have the PV, uh, we have solar that are all coming in at cheaper cost now. Uh, the grid needs to be uh, multifaceted. It can't be dominated by the old anymore. But there are entrenched uh, interests when it comes to the old technology and as long as the entrenched interests are the ones that um, can actually move the levers of power then it's unlikely that we're going to see movement on some of these things um, going forward it is likely because these things are not quick fixes but what is likely going to happen is to see more and more people investing in their own um, mini systems uh, as on a household level uh, maybe even at a complex level if you uh, live in such a situation universities um, uh, schools, um, office parks, office buildings, you know, that type of thing, all investing in their own independent power likely going to see uh you know more and more of that you know people trying to re re reduce um their their rely their reliance um on uh, on the power grid uh maybe you know things like gas for cooking all of these things um we're likely going to see consumers saying that um that that escom isn't really coming to the table and escom on its own can't be blamed for all this we've been talking about uh the entrenched interests throughout uh, today's discussion. Discussion. So going forward, we're likely going to see that situation where everyone uh, starts investing in their own uh, backup power, in their own power generation in one way or another. Um, people diverting, you know, whatever little budgets that they have, because that's the other piece that we need to be cognizant of is the fact that consumers in particular are under uh, massive pressure. And now they're saddled with the responsibility of having to divert whatever uh, little little money that they have on hand to you know some of these alternative power systems alternative power backup generations and when i talk about that i'm talking simple things like even just having going and buying power banks uh just to charge a phone that is extra money that a person would normally uh, not have had to invest uh, but now people are considering power packs tesla power walls and you know solar panels all of this stuff and um you know going forward uh one one wonders what the situation will be like but um, it will not be the same today and five years from now we're likely going to be having a different uh, situation that people will be dealing with And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producer is Paige Muller. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight which is a multimedia live production. So for myself and the rest of the team, it is good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.